the great, um, what's it called, Pandemine Day. It's the same back and forth and forward. It's a great Super Bowl Sunday. You know, it's a convergence of events. I think the end times are here. But um, Angela's birthday, that's the, that's the kicker. It's Angela's birthday. Happy birthday, Angela. If, and Jan's birthday. All right, well, you guys can fight about whose birthday it really is. Because we only can have one. So, well, we are continuing our journey through the book of Genesis. And so we now have arrived at Genesis chapters 5, 6, and 7, where we're talking about Noah's Ark, um, or the flood, or whatever you want to call it. And so we're going to dive there in a second. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts for what he has to say. Dear Father, we pray for this time as we come together as, a, as your body, as your people, that we can open up your word, know your truth, see who you are, see how you act in this world, see your son, and know how we have been saved. Lord, I pray for this time that you make clear to us and bring to life to us your word so that we can follow all the more. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Noah's Ark. I think we all probably have heard a story where almost everyone's familiar with it. It's easily recognizable, and probably if you were put on, put on the spot, you probably could give a pretty good rendition of this account in the Bible. But what comes to your mind when you think about Noah's Ark? Let's do an experiment. Everyone close their eyes. And think about Noah's Ark. What comes to mind when you're thinking that? I'm betting, for most of us, what comes to mind is a lot of cute animals walking two by two up to a big boat. Right? We get a lot of images kind of like this in our mind. Maybe. Almost there. There we go. We get a lot of images like this. It's a happy time. People are crowded onto a big boat with, with giraffes and elephants and all of these things. And that's what's in our minds a lot when we think about it, because that's what's easy to focus on, the cuteness factor. It's easy to focus on the animal thing. And actually, we make it a kid story where we celebrate Noah's Ark as this big kind of kid story, and we tell it to our kids. Uh, it's, and it's everywhere. There's toys you can buy of Noah's Ark that have the animals and the ark. And it's really fun. If you are a fan of the movies, movie Wayne's World, they even kind of consider it a kind of kid thing. Is there's a Noah's Arcade in that movie because obviously that makes sense. But we come so familiar to this story that we end up missing the point. Or missing the boat, if you will. Ba-boom. We tend to focus on the cuteness, or maybe we tend to focus on the other things about, wait, how big was it, and is it possible that all the animals could fit on the ark? And we tend to focus on these side issues because it's easier to do that than to really look at what this story is saying. For when we look at the story, it's a much more dynamic and much deeper than just some cute animals going onto a boat. When we look at the story, there's something going on that we have to struggle with, and we come face to face when we look at the story truly with a holy God who judges people. 
We come face to face with the reality of the sinfulness of humanity. We come face to face with things we don't want to deal with. It's so much, so much easier to back off and think of it as a kid's story, a cute story. Last week, Bruce uh, Brown walked us through Genesis 4, and so now we're going to continue walking through Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 5, we see a long list of names and a lineage coming down from Seth all the way to Noah. And that's really great and profitable to read those and see how the line, the, the offspring from Seth uh, continues to Noah and how they've been walking with God. But I'm going to spare us reading all those names, and we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 6. So you have your Bible? You can open up Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to start in the first uh, verse there. And it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the, son, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they took them as wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of the man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and the creepy things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These were the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jehef. Now the, Lord was, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make room in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark, and finish Finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is in the, on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, for he did all that God commanded him. And chapter 7 continues the story where God uh, shuts them into the ark and the rains start coming and the aquifers of the deep open up and so a flood comes upon the earth. And then picking up the story again in Genesis chapter 7, verse 17, it says, The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. 
The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swimming creatures that swam on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was a breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creepy things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. That's a great kid story, isn't it? We kind of gloss over those parts when we tell it to our kids. Because if there's one thing our culture cannot stand, it's the idea or the concept of judgment. We cannot stand the fact that someone would dare judge someone else. In fact, our culture has become the champions of tolerance to the point where we're going to become very intolerant to those who are intolerant. It's kind of ironic, right? Because we don't like judgment, but we love to judge people who are not, ju- not judging as they, or are judging as they should not judge. It's confusing. Because no one wants to be judged. We don't, right? We can admit that. And in fact, we can trace it back up just a few chapters before in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, what were they doing? They're setting themselves up as their own gods. And they're basically saying, God can't even judge me, let alone anyone else. And we can carry that strand in our hearts where we think no one can judge me. Only I can judge myself because I am my own God. And we see this expressed many different ways in our culture. Phrases such as, my life, I do what I want. It's my body. It's my choice. Only God can judge me. Said by people who probably don't even believe there is a God. Said by people who are probably going to be judged by God. We say these things. People in our culture say these things because we really believe judgment's not there. That in the heart of the rebellious humanity apart from Christ, the idea that God's going to judge us seems far off, seems remote, doesn't seem realistic. It's not what we experience day by day. And it's into this culture that we open up Genesis chapter 6 and read a story, a true story, God's word, about the fact that God judges. That God, the perfect God, the perfect judge, passes judgment upon humanity. And we have to deal with that. We have to come to grips with that and see why that is. But as I said, there's all these side issues that people like to get caught up in because it's easier to talk about those than the main point of this text. And so I'll do that. We'll, we'll talk about some of those side issues people love to bat around because there's a lot of them in this text about what is the point and, they, and people can focus on these different points. One of the big side issues people love to kind of sit on and debate about is right at the beginning of chapter 6 when it has this confusing language about the sons of God marrying the daughters of man. It's confusing because no one knows what this means. I don't, people don't like when you say that about the Bible, but it's true. If you talk to 10 different commentators, you'll probably get 10 different slight little takes on really what this means. Because that phrase, sons of God, is used only a few times in the Bible. 
Sometimes it's, it's obviously referring to angelic beings. When you read the intro of Job and we have the sons of God coming into his council, it's very clearly angelic beings coming before God and talking with him. But then when you start reading the genealogies and you see that Seth was called a son of God and you see these instances that sometimes son of God means the people who followed God, who were descended from that offspring promised from Eve. These are the people who followed God. And so their big debate is this is whether this is talking about some angelic beings coming down and marrying women or if this is talking about the perversion that happened where the people who followed God started marrying people who didn't follow God. It doesn't matter where you come down on it. What matters is this is painting a picture where people are getting off track, where people can't save themselves from the perversion that's happening, and they need correction, and they need something to get them back on track. Another issue, a side issue I think that people kind of dwell on is, maybe you've heard this objection before, but people talk about how ancient myths, other ancient creation myths, have this narrative of a worldwide flood. And they say, well, then that maybe proves that the Bible is not really counting as accurate, but it's pulling from other cultures. Well, it's interesting because I was, my, uh, actually, my dad gave me this commentary, and this uh, guy accounts over 200 um, ancient myths across the world that include accounts of a worldwide flood. And it's funny when you start, when you start compiling the information, it talks about how 70% of these accounts include survival by boat. 88% of these accounts include um, a favored family is saved. And on and on. You know, 57% include survivors ending up on a mountain range. Things that are very, very similar to the, uh, the account we have in the Bible. And the fact that the closer these myths are to where this happened in the Middle East, in, in that kind of region, that um, they're more closer, more closer has to be done, they're closer to the biblical account. And as you get people going further away, they, they uh, kind of get off track. Why did I mention that? Because what is more likely, that the Bible borrowed from all these other ones, or the fact that all these myths and stories testify to the fact that something truly did happen that involved a flood that all of humanity experienced. And it worked its way into the stories they told their, their people. And so it, it's an it's a element that testifies to the truthfulness of this account. This is another side issue that I want to mention because we, we wrestle with this is the hard language within this account when it says, the Lord regretted that he made humanity. It grieved his heart. Why is that hard language to read? Because it seems to fly and fly in face of the rest of the, of the narratives we have from the Bible. Because we see again and again that the Lord does not change. Then he tells, him, he tells that to his people that he does not change and they should rejoice in that because they will not be consumed because he does not change. And again and again we see this, this instance where our God is that stable rock we can depend upon. He always acts towards us with love and grace and mercy. And when we're, when we're wayward, he brings us back to him. And so when we read this, it, we struggle to understand how this could be possible that the Lord regretted that he made humanity. It seems to paint a picture of the Lord not knowing what was going to happen when he made humanity. But that can't be true, 
So people struggle to accept how they can, they can read this. And so some people say, well, we just have to read it at face value, and that means that God can change, and that God can be taken by surprise by people. But that leads to huge problems and does not align with the rest of Scripture. And so the most common way, and the way I, I would take this passage, is that it's using human language to describe God. And every time we do that, it falls a little short. Because God is not just a bigger one of us. God is not human. God transcends his creation. And so the only way we can know God is that he condescends and he accommodates himself to us. And so that's the only way we can understand him. And so when we try to describe him and when a narrative especially is trying to describe his actions in the real world, we use human language that falls a little short. And so Lord regretting, something's going on there but it's not how some a human would regret. It's not how a human would change his mind. Something deeper is going on there. People, don't, people sometimes wrestle with that because it doesn't give them a nice, pat, tight little answer. But guess what? The Bible sometimes doesn't do that for us. And so there's other ways people try to, to express that or to get to the, 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 the bottom of that language. But uh, people are wrestling with this idea of trying to, how do we take this narrative tell and apply it to the nature of God. Now I mentioned this to side issues, which I believe are not the point of the passage, because that's what people get held up on, and people want to talk about those. And as you're in your small groups, people probably will want to talk about those different issues. And so we need to approach them well as and, and know what they're saying and know the different options we can take, but all at the same time see beyond them to what is the main point of this passage. So what is the main point of this account of God flooding the earth and saving one family to continue the line? What is this point? And I would put it like this. God justly judges while giving grace. That's the main point we see in this passage. That in this narrative, we see the full-bodied God that we worship. A God that is not flattened out. He is not streamlined for our, our uh, consumption, but a God who is both just judge who cannot stand sin, who must act on this world, but at the same time we see the loving God who saves and bestows his grace upon those who he loves. And we see this God, his attributes coming together and working perfectly together that he justly judges while giving grace. And those two things stand out, and I think that's the main point we see in this narrative is that our God judges. There's a thing such as God's justice in this passage. As I said, no one likes judgment. Well, when we approach it from the biblical standpoint, we see who God is, that he has the right to judge. Why? Because God has the right to rule. He is the creator king. He has a right to render verdict. He has a right to do whatever he wants with the world and the people he has made. And that chafes us because that is us that God can do that with. And we rebel against that. Oh, no, that's, that feels uncomfortable. But the truth of the matter is, again and again, the Bible describes this God as being that judge. It describes him in, in Psalms 115 as our God is in heaven and he does as he pleases. That God is our just king, the standard setter, the one who gets to make the rules, the one who gets to say this is right or this is wrong, the one who gets to command your life, the one who gets to say whatever he wants to say, and it goes. 
That is who God is. And justice is part of that. And justice is good. If we're innocent, oh, we know justice is good. Vindication! Aha! I was right. But justice is good. People tremble and fear justice when they're guilty. And so, but justice is good. When you have been wrong, when you have been hurt, when you have uh, experienced that from different people in life, you want justice to be served. Justice is good. And when we look upon this world where there's so much sin, there's so much hurt, there's so much troubling behavior, we want justice to be served. We want wrongs to be made right. And this has to happen. Why? Because God is not only the just judge, but he is the perfect holy God. God cannot look at sin and sweep it under the rug. That God from the beginning has says, all sin will be paid. We who stand on the other side of the cross know that all sin will be paid, either in that sinner or in Jesus Christ, but all sin needs to be paid, needs to be paid for, needs to be dealt with. This is our God. And when we come face to face with this God, it, sh- it sheds a light on the wickedness and the sinfulness of humanity. That we do not measure up to the standard setter. That we do not follow him as we should. That we have gone our own way. We've gone astray. That we try to set ourselves up as many gods and rebel against him. And in the narrative of Noah, it describes humanity as every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Seems pretty bad, and it was. But when we look around, could we say that humanity is that much better off now than they were back then? We see this, and we know the fact that humanity falls short of God's standard, and he is right to judge them. Back in the um, 1700s, Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan uh, pastor. If you have heard Jonathan Edwards, he's probably the greatest theologian America has ever produced, even though that was before America existed. Uh, he he uh, was part of the Great Awakening. He preached a sermon that he had preached many times before, and people came to know God in these great droves. And, and in part of that sermon, which uh, people are turned off by the name because it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry, Angry God, a part of that sermon, he talks about how God loves God for his forbearance is holding all of humans from judgment. And it's only his good pleasure. And he uses these images like humans are a spider dangling over the fire of judgment. And it's only the threat of his, his forbearance is keeping humanity from being judged. He talks about humans are like, are like walking across a cliff and their feet are going to slip, but it's only God holding their foot into place that keeps them from judgment. And that if he was to withhold, um, pull back his hand, they would fall into judgment. And he's talking about humanity when he says, we have offended, or you have offended him, humanity has offended God infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It's this idea he was capturing that God is just and he has the right to judge. And we have to come to that place in the reality of our sin before we can even appreciate 
his next move. That God is just. God justly judges while giving grace. It's a real downer, that first part, right? If we read that account and we're like, man, and we see God's justice, that feels like a downer by love so quickly. Right there in verse 8, we see the hint of the gospel. For it was talking about humanity. It talks about how God has, has regretted making humanity. He's decided to blot them all out. And then it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You've heard this from me before, but I think the gospel is summed up in that one word, but. Because that is the gospel. We see it again and again, especially in the New Testament. Humanity has gone astray, but God sends his son. Humanity is doing his own thing and lost in sin, dead in trespasses, but God makes them alive. And right here, we have the same hint at the gospel. Humanity was wicked. God was going to blot them out. But Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. We read that, and we, being who we are, like to say, oh, Noah must have been really good. Noah must have had everything lined out. Noah must have been one of those great people. I'm not like Noah. Well, guess what? It's not because Noah was so good that he found favor. It's not because Noah was righteous in and of himself, but he found favor in the eyes of the Lord just like anyone finds favor in the eyes of the Lord is that he believed God and sought to follow that he, just like Abram, who's going to come in a, little, in a few chapters, was accounted righteousness. Why? Because he believed in God. And so Noah believed, heard who God was, followed him, and so God looked upon him as righteous. We know it's not Noah in and of himself of just trying really hard that he got some position that God was recognized. No, that's against the whole Bible story because Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous. Not one. And we know this, this truth. And we, when we read the, the um, New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, it, it helps interpret the story of Noah when it says, but by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen and reverent fear constructed the ark for the saving of his household. By this he, is, he uh, condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so we see this account that God gives grace to someone who does not deserve it, and they're saved. Because make no mistake, Without God acting in Noah's life, he would have been consumed by the flood with everyone else. But God has grace upon Noah because he believes and he follows, and this has huge implications for us. Because we're saved the same way. We're saved not because of righteous works we have done, as, Tim, as uh, Titus 3.5 says, that he saved us. Not because works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, that we're saved because we believe in who God is. We're saved because of God's grace. We're saved not because we're good enough or he liked us better, but we're saved because he gives his grace upon us. And we respond to that grace and walk and our ways, and so our hope is not, man, I just got to be more like Noah. 
a righteous man. But our hope is that God saves us through Jesus Christ. And by me believing, I know I have God's grace. And we see how Noah is actually a type of Christ. It points us to Christ. Again and again through the Old Testament, you see these figures that serve to point to Christ, that they save people to point to Christ. And again and again, and Noah is one of those figures, that he saves people, and through his doing and his following God, people are saved, and the lineage of humanity is continued because of his faithfulness. And he's, all he's doing is pointing to that better, that fuller Noah that is going to come, that, that Noah that we know is Jesus Christ, who saves people fully and completely from God's judgment. And so we see this. And so this story, when we read it, we see God's judgment and we see God's grace being poured out upon humanity. So how do we react to this story? What does this mean for us? Well, the story calls us to repent. It calls us to look for Christ. It calls us to walk with God. You know, when you look around when we read the story, then you look around, and as I mentioned, it's kind of easy to say, man, they seemed really bad back then. Humanity really was off the rails, and it makes sense that God judged them. But, you know, we progressed so much. We have telephones now. Pretty neat. I mean, we made the Internet. Pretty good. We have all these, these progressions and these things that we have uh, saturated our lives with, and we think, man, we're different than them. But I'll just ask you to look around. Is humanity any different than the people during Noah's day? I don't think so. When you think about the fact that conservatively, 600,000 babies were aborted in America last year. I think we're ruled by violence and evil in our hearts. When you think about the people who are being trafficked, through our country and other countries, the people who are being abused, the people who are being taken advantage of. If you think about the fact that our country has been continually at war for so long and it's become normalized, and then look across the globe again and again, it's everywhere. Evil is ruling the day, it seems. Evil is living its best life now. And we look at that and we realize. We're not that different than the people of Noah's time. And so this story is one we look at and we can place ourselves in this story and we can see how we're supposed to respond. And the first and foremost one is that when we look at the story, who are we most like? Well, without Christ, who are we most like? The people who are being washed away by the flood. And that's who we are without Christ. And so when we read this story, we say, that's who I am, and that's a call to repent. That's a call to listen to God. That's a call to run to Christ. That's a call to understand that we can't save ourselves. The flood of judgment is going to happen, and we need a Savior. And so this is a call to look for that Savior and God's Son, Jesus Christ. This is also a call to action. Then when we look at the story, we can look at Noah and we can see how he followed after God faithfully and we can see how he's described as a man blameless in his generation. And so it's a, it's a call to be like Noah who's described as someone who walked with God. And so it's a call to say, walk in faith. Walk all your life 
seeking to be obedient to what God commands you, to put yourself under God's word and to serve him as he calls us. It's a call to be like Noah, blameless in his generation. This means, this is the language meaning that Noah was not tainted by his generation. Noah was not partaking in the evil of his generation. He stood apart. And there's a call for all Christians who believe in Jesus to stand apart from the evil we are in. We stand apart and that does not touch us. That we should be people who follow God faithfully and are not like the world around us. It's a call to action. Finally, it's just a call to hope. For I would say, what, who are you most like if you believe in Christ? Who are you most like in the story? You're Noah's family. Not that much is mentioned about Noah's family. We get the guy's names. The wives aren't even mentioned. Not that much is known, but they are saved. Why? Because God gave grace to Noah. And if you think about who we are, and as we stand in Christ, we are saved not because of our own works, not even if it's in a reality, not even because God is giving us something directly. No, we're saved. Why? Because he sent his son to which we can cling to, and we're saved. And in a very real way, as Noah's family boarded his ark, that we, we grasp and cling to the cross of Christ, which is his ark, that's going to save us from God's judgment. And so who are we? We are Noah's family who grabs hold of Jesus Christ, our elder brother, who did life perfectly in God's sight, who never sinned, who gave us his righteousness, who takes our sin, who makes us part of God's family, who brings us into his kingdom, and who is going to come back again to make sure is complete and rule and reign as he promised. We're saved by Christ. We are Noah's family and we look for him and this is a call to hope, not hope in our own actions, not hope in our own righteousness, but hope in Jesus Christ who saved us. God justly judges while giving grace and we're thankful for that. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word that we can know, we can read, we can respond to. Your word that we can meditate on day and night. Your word that can grow in us and challenge us and push us. We're thankful for your grace that saves us. And Lord, we pray that we can look in the story and and see our need to repent. And we can look and see our need for action that we can stand apart from our generation and seek God in all that we do. And we pray that this is all done because we have that hope of Jesus Christ. We have this hope that he saves us. We have this hope that in him we're spared judgment. Lord, we love you. We seek you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.